Hello again and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. This will be part 11 in our discussion of Oral Torah, Proof of Its Legitimacy and Necessity. And this will be finally the concluding podcast, the concluding audio. We're going, we're going to finish it up with this lesson. Now, and the conclusion is actually fairly important because I'll, I'll round some things out. I'll summarize some things, make some statements that need to be understood, and then we'll end it. So, we're going to first finish up the basic discussion and then enter in, into an actual conclusion. We left off in part 10, and I mentioned how we were going to discuss how ignorance of, of the Apostle Paul's rabbinic method leads to Christian anti-Torah mindset. It leads to that mindset. Christians are untaught regarding the rabbinic method, and they're untaught because their Christian leaders do not teach them. And their Christian leaders do not teach them because, frankly, most Christian leaders themselves are quite ignorant, to be perfectly blunt. They're, they're basically completely ignorant of Torah particularly oral Torah, and since they know nothing about it, they certainly can't teach it. And as I've said before, because of their ignorance of Torah, there's not a Christian leader out there that is actually a legitimate teacher. They should not be teaching the Word of God because they do not even know the fundamental basic premise of the Word of God, which is Torah. So because of that, unfortunately, Christianity is plagued with gross ignorance because their leaders are either either actively serving the the devil, frankly, uh, such as the Roman Catholic Church, or they're simply ignorant. They're, they've been promoting a Roman pagan sun god worship religion. Uh, you might say the most precise definition of being Mithraism. That is the true religion of Christianity. It's Mithraism. It's a pagan idolatrous faith system, but it's been been promoted for so long that Christians do not even realize that they're actively engaged in a grossly pagan, unbiblical faith system. It's it's the old adage, if you promote a lie long enough and strong enough, people accept it as the truth, and that's what's happened. Since Christianity has promoted the Mithraism, pagan sun god worship, idolatrous anti-Torah lie for basically 1,800 years since they've been promoting it for so long, and most of those years, Christians did not even have a Bible to read. They were not able to study. Since it's been done for so long, Christians are totally ignorant of what they're actually worshiping. They're completely ignorant of the religion of which they are actually a part and do not realize that it is a horribly pagan, idolatrous faith system, and they will be judged for it, because now they can study, now they can seek, and particularly in the United States, they have the freedom to read and study whatever they wish, but they're too lazy to do it. And just as Yeshua says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, I will... Many will come to me in that day, saying, Lord, did we not prophesy in your your name? Did we not... Do many wonderful works in your name, etc., etc. And he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. 
ye workers of lawlessness. And the word lawlessness is anomia, which it literally means Torahlessness, which literally means those who have contempt for the Torah or violate the Torah. That is what he's going to say to many, many, probably most Christians. I'm trying to wake Christians up. So let me, I'll end my rant there, but let me continue discussing how ignorance of Paul's rabbinic method leads to a Christian anti-Torah mindset. Christians display a particularly high level of ignorance when it comes to understanding their rabbinic method. This is a fundamental flaw in their understanding. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee and, frankly, never stopped being a Pharisee. He was taught under the guidance of Gamaliel the Elder, the foremost rabbi of his generation and the Nasi or president of the Sanhedrin at that time. And Gamaliel is supremely revered to this very day within Judaism. The Apostle Paul, because he was taught rabbinically by the greatest rabbi sage of his day, follows typical rabbinic teaching methods, and he utilizes those methods. Yeshua the Messiah did exactly the same thing in his teachings. In rabbinic writings, it is very common, effectively a standard technique, for a verse or a set of verses to be mentioned, and then great flexibility to be used in an expansion of application for that verse or those verses. It's called, as we mentioned earlier, it's generally the Midrash. You'll also hear it called Medrash. The Midrash method, Medrash. When one looks at the verses, it is sometimes difficult. That is, the first verses that, that a rabbi is discussing, Yeshua, Paul, whoever. When someone looks at the, actu- the actual biblical verses, it's sometimes difficult to ascertain how the rabbi arrived at his conclusions, since often the specific original context of the verses does not appear to support his point, and may specifically refer to something entirely different. In many cases, the verses are combined from different areas of Scripture for the purpose of the teachings being given. This is very similar to the universal approach all readers and teachers of Scripture utilize. We all sometimes select verses that may not exactly apply, yet still generally applies to what we hope to convey. Christians are generally ignorant of rabbinic methods. So are anti-Paulists. Both wrongly believe the Apostle Paul taught against the Torah because of their ignorance of Torah and of the rabbinic methods. Anti-Paulists, who are often beyond the reach of reason, demand that when the Apostle Paul teaches something, any verses utilized must perfectly match the original context from which they were taken and their own, that is the anti-Paulist, own personal and possibly incorrect interpretation of those verses. They refuse to allow any flexibility in the Apostle Paul's case as they display gross ignorance of rabbinic methods, also ineptness, and a fundamental lack of simple common sense. Or, as is likely the case, they so despise the Apostle Paul, that is, anti-Paulist, 
and his teachings that they refuse to apply their common sense or allow him any rabbinic flexibility. Now, bear in mind, remember earlier, a few parts back, we discussed pardes, the methods of biblical interpretation, pardes, which is an acronym for Peshat, Remez, Drash, basically, P is Peshat, Pardes, the R is Remez, D is Drash, S is Sod. The first method of Peshat is the basic, simple, straightforward reading of something. But there are three deeper, deeper levels of biblical interpretation and understanding beyond the basic, simple reading. People, Christians, the basic, simple reading of a passage is not usually the, uh, the ultimate meaning of a passage. It's used, there are usually deeper meanings, and Christians know this. That's why you have Christian preachers explaining things. They explain things incorrectly, but the, that understanding is common sense. Drash, explanation, and deeper understanding is, is common, as is remez, allegory, as is sowed the underlying deeper secret meaning. And you can go back and review that. We discussed that a few parts back. But you got to remember all of those methods of interpretation. Okay? And Peshat, the basic simple reading, if that's as far as you go, you're never going to understand the Bible. Ever. So furthermore, in Judaism, for instance, you will constantly find instances of where the rabbis will literally change the words in a passage to convey the intent of various parts of Scripture, Scripture that sometimes has more than one application in the same context. It will have a simple, that is Peshat, obvious application, and also a hidden, deeper application that is not readily apparent, that is Drash, Ramez, and Sod. To the unschooled, such actions would appear to be sneaky, heretical, or irreverent. But the guys who do it are not unschooled. They know that, you know, they know what they're doing and do it only when they feel sure of their opinions or as part of a quote from a past exalted sage. The passage will be quoted as written, then you will read them saying something like, It should be read as, or read it as, and then a portion will be entirely rephrased. Now, at times, the change will seem a bit odd and perhaps even illegitimate. It happens all the time in Jew Jewish writings. It is part of the rabbinic method of discussion. And yes, often because of the severe errors of Akiva Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, their elitism and their authoritarianism, Often they are wrong. Often they do. Sometimes they do totally change a verse just to meet their own bias, their own elitism, their own, you know, something. They will change a verse to support the worship of their sages. And yes, I will say it again, and I, can, and I often say it. Rabbinic Judaism, <coughs> excuse me, in Rabbinic Judaism, the sages, particularly the most highly revered sage, sages of Judaism, are literally their gods. What the sages say is basically to them what God is saying. They worship themselves. The rabbis have created a religion, rabbinic Judaism, that literally is a worship of themselves, of the sages of Judaism, which as the ancestors, or excuse me, as the descendants of those sages, 
It's the rabbis now who are literally worshipped. That is a fact, and any rabbi who tells you otherwise is a liar. They worship their sages. They exalt them to the level in terms of the authority of their teachings. They exalt them to the level of the Almighty Creator God, and that is a fact. Again, any Orthodox Jew, any Rabbinic Jew, any Akiva Judaism Jew who says who says that is untrue is either stupid or a bold-faced liar. Okay, continuing on. So, why does the Rabbinic Method do this? Why does the Rabbinic Method take a verse and at times seem to change its meaning? Well, it may be helpful to understand what's called the language of the branches, since it helps somewhat to explain this oddity within Jewish discourse. And again, I'm not saying they're always right when they do this, but it is a method of interpretation. You, it is legitimate the, at the concept of the deeper level of understanding of scriptures of passage of passages. That is a legitimate concept. That is a useful concept. The problem is the rabbis have completely usurped the, the, the power of God and, and usurped it and taken it for themselves, and they have corrupted this concept. They have corrupted this rabbinic method to support their own authoritarian tyranny and the elitism of Akiva Judaism. They've corrupted it. So you have to be careful. Basically, as I've said before, any takano, any rabbinic stuff, any Takanut, Gezerot, Menhak, any Durabanans, rabbinic decrees, ignore them. Basically, ignore them. Now, you may look at them for, you know, to see if they make sense and maybe want to adapt them, but they are totally unnecessary. It's adding to the Torah. Rabbinic decrees are a violation themselves, a direct violation of the Torah, which teaches you are not to add to or take away from the commandments of God. And yet the rabbis do it constantly. They have more of their own added commandments than the actual than the number of actual commandments that exist. They've made it a religion of rabbi worship. They've made it a religion of Akiva worship. Of Tanaim, the revered sages, they worship their Tanaim. They worship them as their God, their instructor, not their creator, but what they say to them are the words of God. So they've corrupted this legitimate method of rabbinic discourse. Now, what is this language of the branches? All right, the concept of the language of the branches. The concept is that all things, and this is a legitimate concept, by the way, the concept is that all things on earth have a heavenly root. It is best to think of it as an upside-down tree for which the roots are in heaven and the branches hang down to us here on earth. Those branches here on earth have a heavenly root, all of them. Everything, literally everything, material, uh, 
in terms of material, in terms of concept, in terms of science. Everything in the physical realm has its own spiritual root, its own root in the spiritual realm. There are no exceptions. God communicates in the language of those branches. That is, he communicates in a way we will understand. The greatest of the sages, based upon thousands of years of intense Torah study and knowledge of Torah, passed down all the way from Moses and even beyond, are skilled in the knowledge of their branches and their respective roots. It is one of the deeper mystical aspects of Torah. Since the eternal realms of the heavens do not have words available in any language with which to properly describe or discuss them, the sages use the language of the branches, which means they use earthly, normal language, items, or descriptions common to mankind's intellectual grasp. This is further described by the foundational scripture interpretation principle of, quote, the Torah is written in the language of man, end quote. This earthly corporeal language, God's means of communicating to humans in a manner they can begin to understand, uses equivocal terms that must usually be explained and clarified in order to properly interpret and apply the scripture's language of man or language of the branches to their actual intended meanings. Those intended meanings are spiritual, ethereal issues that are themselves impossible to precisely describe. This is especially true of the highest of those spiritual realms approaching the level of the Ein Sof without end the incomprehensible, infinite creator, and the cause of all causes. The outstanding writing, The Guide of the Perplexed, by the aforementioned Moses Maimonides, or Rambam, is an excellent resort, resource for anyone seeking to begin a study in how to properly interpret various terms used in Scripture. Now, what I'm saying here, remember, is there are really no words to correctly and accurately describe describe the heavenly realms, particularly the, the domain occupied by the Creator God Himself. We, there, there's, there's no way to properly explain that. So God has to basically dumb down the understanding so that we, mankind, can understand it. That's called the language of the branches. So the root in heaven... We, he doesn't communicate to us on the level of the root, the language of the root. He communicates on the language of the branches. So that's why it's where you have to d- dig deeper and delve deeper into passages to truly understand what they mean. Because it's extremely high-level stuff, spiritually speaking, which we cannot... The, the Bible itself says God is invisible, unapproachable. The Apostle Paul says that. He's incomprehensible. So we can't fully grasp it. So it has to be dumbed down and communicated to mankind in such a way that at least we get a basic understanding. What this means is that there is what can be best described as a code 
composed of common terminology, which is used to actually refer to spiritual and heavenly things, which are not themselves able to be described properly due to their extremely and supremely exalted existence. It is one of the many ways in which Jewish thought shows their extreme reverence and awe for the eternal God and His unimaginable, incomprehensible wisdom and glory. Without knowledge of the various code words and phrases, a person has no idea what is being discussed. Now, these code words or or concepts, it's not done to hide anything, though with regard to the more mystical things, it is and may be used as a form of concealment. But the primary reason is just to provide a viable means to discuss heavenly things that are otherwise not able to be properly described. This code issue is one reason an unschooled person would be a fool to even attempt to read various Kabbalistic writings, such as the Zahar, Sefer Yetzirah, or Bahir. I dare not attempt such a reading, since I, like most others, have far to go to understand even the language of the branches, the basic Torah. It is literally impossible to understand such reading, that is, the deeper things, unless and until the language of the branches are themselves thoroughly and completely understood. And that task takes many years of studying introductions and fundamental aspects of Kabbalah, possibly under the tutelage of a legitimate and gifted Torah scholar of high status, if the goal is to advance further into the deeper fundamental text. Personally, since there are no such scholars of whom I am aware who accept Yeshua, those of us who do accept Yeshua are forced to spend those years of study prayerfully seeking the Most High God's direct assistance to guide us. If we seek the guidance of such Yeshua-rejecting scholars, we are at a high risk of allowing their strong bias against Yeshua and the New Testament to lead us away from our faith in Messiah. I do not advise seeking the direct guidance of anyone who rejects Yeshua, but I do advise studying material from Jewish sources while practicing discernment during your studies. Regardless, folks, I am not exaggerating when I, when I say years of study, decades even, is required before a person should dare attempt reading the three Kabbalistic books I mentioned previously. If you are too impatient, overly exalt yourself, consider yourself as being wise beyond what is true, and cannot resist, then do not assume when you read, read deep Kabbalistic works that you are understanding what is written and approach it with an extreme level of humility while maintaining flexibility in the sense of knowing that you are probably wrong in many cases in your understanding of what you're reading. By all means, do not be so arrogant as to think that your likely disagreement with certain things you may read is proof that they are wrong, when in fact it is probably almost certainly proof instead 
that you are not properly understanding the material due to your ignorance of the language of the branches. Now, again, not all of the material <laughs> you read I would what I would personally endorse. You've got to practice discernment. You've got to recognize the errors of Akiva Judaism, of Rabbinic Judaism, which I discuss or introduce in the four-part series where I contrast Yeshua Judaism and Akiva Judaism. You've got to rec recognize those errors and realize that rabbis are profoundly elitist, biased, and tyrants. They are supporting rabbinic authority, authoritarianism. So why do I bring all this up? I do so because it is a hint, though not necessarily a precise explanation, of why you will sometimes see rabbis completely change the wording of a verse. They do this partly because of their intimate knowledge of the linkage between the heavenly and earthly and the conceptual linkages within the Torah itself. The idea is that their understanding of the complex linkages between the heavenly roots and the worldly branches, and between heavenly concepts and the worldly written text, allows them to link concepts into a passage that are not readily discernible as being legitimate. Whether you agree with it or not, it is simply another aspect of the rabbinic method. Therefore, those who may complain about passages in the Apostle Paul's epistles, for instance, or anywhere else in the New Testament that do not appear to exactly match the Tanakh, or as, they, as Christians are reverently say, Old Testament, they do not exactly match the Tanakh passages from which they came, or that seem to be talking about something else other than what they appear to explicitly apply in the context of the Tanakh from which they were taken, those who think that, they're, that may complain about what doesn't appear to match, all they're, they're simply... They're simply ignorant of the rabbinic technique I just described. It's common for a rabbi to quote a passage from the Tanakh and then go off on a discussion of something that that passage doesn't seem to apply to. Well, we see this also in the New Testament, particularly in the Apostle Paul's teachings. You will, you will see in the New Testament at times Tanakh passages quoted, and then there will be a discussion that may not, may not appear to precisely apply. Now, Jewish countermissionaries, those who just, just, just despise Yeshua, his followers in the New Testament, they will point this out, and they will use it as evidence in their mind. They'll say, see, see, the New Testament's wrong. See, it's completely misunderstanding this verse that it quotes from the Tanakh. It's not telling you what it really means. They're liars. They're deceitful because they do the same thing. Judaism does that all the time. They will quote a passage from the Tanakh and then go off and, ex and, and explain it in a way that does not seem to make any sense. It does not seem to apply at all to what the passage says. And they will even change the words of passages. So counter missionaries, as they're pointing this out in the New Testament, they're concealing that they do it even more. Just the rabbis do it even more. Do not listen to counter, particularly, I'll, I'll give his name. Tovia Singer is a liar. Tovia Singer practices Lashon Hara and deceit 
on a daily basis. He makes his living doing it. He lies about the New Testament. He quotes errors from Christianity and then seems and then tries to equate them to what the New Testament teaches. Tobias Singer, you're a liar. And you know it. You know you're practicing deceit, but you're shameless. You're shameless and filled with baseless hatred and lush and horror. You gotta remember, people, Christians, counter missionaries are the most deceitful people you will ever meet because of what they conceal regarding their own religion. But the Jewish rabbi, Jewish kind of missionaries conceal the much, much more expansive craziness of their own religion, even as they attack the New Testament. They're liars, and they're totally shameless. And as the rabbis, the sages once stated, the most the, the single characteristic of a truly wicked, wicked person, if you were to take all the characteristics and decide what is the single most prominent characteristics of someone who is wicked, it is shamelessness. And Jewish-based counter-missionaries, Rabbi Tovia Singer and those like him, are utterly shameless, liars, deceitful, and they know it. And they don't care. They don't care about the truth. They don't care to advance what the New Testament is really teaching. No, they just want to keep focusing on pagan Christianity's errors and say that's what the New Testament teaches when they know that is not what the New Testament teaches, but they're deceitful, shameless liars. Okay, my little rant there. I have no respect at all for people like Tobias Singers. They're just so deceitful. It's, des- it's despicable. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> finish my rant there. So again, talking about the rabbinic method. All right. So again, like I said, whether you agree with it or not, it's a rabbinic method. Therefore, if you complain, people who complain about the Apostle Paul or other, or, or other places in the New Testament, those who think he's anti-Torah, those who think he's pro-Torah. It doesn't matter. You've got to understand the rabbinic method. In other words, it is very common in the Torah talk of the rabbis for passages to appear strangely used in many ways that are not obvious and perhaps even odd or wrong. And in many cases within the rabbinic Judaism, they are wrong, even in more cases, though, within Christianity. But for the unlearned, who have not been schooled in such things as the language of the branches, or who have not undertaken Torah study to the depth of the sages and of the Apostle Paul, for anyone like that to judge such things is arrogant and presumptuous. Remember, the Apostle Paul was taught by the premier sage and Torah scholar of his generation, Gamliel the Elder, or Gamliel I. He was the president or nasi of the Sanhedrin which means he was the greatest of the great among the Torah scholars of his generation. To this day, he is enormously respected within Judaism. Such sages do not casually accept just anyone into their fold, into their yeshivas or Torah study schools. Therefore, like it or not, it is highly probable that the Apostle Shaul, later called the Apostle Paul, 
was a supremely gifted and educated expert on all aspects of Torah, both written Torah and oral Torah. Therefore, any odd uses that the Apostle Paul may appear to make with Tanakh passages is simply more evidence of his Jewish Torah-focused approach. It is his use of what I earlier referred to as Torah talk. It is not, as anti-Paulist claim, evidence of his being stupid, tricky, or anti-Torah. All it is, if it is done, is evidence of his Torah genius and his use of standard rabbinic techniques. I will not attempt to educate Christians or anti-Paulist on the rabbinic method. There are numerous books or examples they can consult if such is their desire. Suffice it to say that they need such educating, but it is not my job to provide it. It is theirs if they care and love God enough to undertake it. This is yet another reason the sages say, Study is the highest form of worship. Study provides or excuse me, proves whether or not a person truly loves God enough to seek Him with their whole heart, mind, and soul. Study is the quintessential bit of evidence that determines if one truly loves the Eternal Creator and His Chosen One, Yeshua the Messiah. Without sincere study, things such as the rabbinic methods are impossible to understand, and therefore, Writings such as the New Testament are also difficult to properly interpret. All right, now my conclusion. The conclusion of this entire series. My obvious conclusion is, Oral Torah is a legitimate and necessary component of biblical interpretation. Now remember, Go back and listen to my, I'm not saying all the oral Torah. I am not, in fact, the Rabbanans, the Takanot, Gezrot, Minhag, the various fences, the various rabbinic dictates, rabbinic decrees, authoritarianism of the rabbis, things they make up and add to Torah, those which do make up a lot of the oral Torah. That's the halakhic, that's the legal, that's the technical aspects. That's why I say primarily with the Agadah, with the non-legal aspects, there is an enormous amount of value, enormous amount of truth. If you erase the extreme elitism that you can sometimes find in it from rabbinic Judaism, Rabbinic Judaism, which teaches that the Jew is a superior human species, that the Goy is literally an inferior species of human. They literally teach that, which I can prove. So if you erase the elitism, erase the rabbinic tyrannical authoritarianism and their their usurping of God with their own commandments, if you erase that, then oral Torah is a enormously valuable, profoundly, absolutely profoundly valuable resource. And the concept of oral Torah is definitely legitimate and necessary if you want to properly interpret the Bible. Remember, oral Torah 
simply means verbal teachings or verbal instruction. And everyone uses verbal teachings. So the concept is without a doubt legitimate and necessary. And anyone who says otherwise is an absolute moronic fool. Since they're probably using oral Torah verbal teachings. So, in the previous discussions, in the previous parts, I presented five basic premises from which proof of the legitimacy of the concept of oral Torah is shown to be blatantly obvious. For Christians to deny this, they must deny their own religious practices and even their own religious beliefs since those beliefs were instilled within them using verbal teachings or oral Torah. Premise one was that Christians do not know what Torah and oral Torah are. Therefore, he went into a relatively deep discussion defining Torah and oral Torah. Premise number two is discussed how Christianity regularly and always has utilized oral Torah. And that's where we discussed how oral Torah is, the, the concept of verbal teaching, is used in Christianity. It's a standard mode of operation in Christianity. Premise three, we went further and discussed how the New Testament supports and is itself a small presentation of some basic oral Torah. And again, the New Testament itself is oral Torah. Premise number four is where we went even further and provided a little more evidence of oral Torah and how it is presented within Scripture itself. We were reading from the the prophet Nehemiah. And finally, in premise five, we discussed briefly evidence showing that Christians are incorrect in their thinking that the New Testament condemns oral Torah. Despite the claim by Christians and Christianity to reject oral Torah, despite the fact Christianity rejects oral Torah, to be truthful, Christians must admit they actually reject the oral Torah they choose not to follow. They don't reject the oral Torah itself. They simply reject the oral Torah or verbal teachings that they disagree with. The oral Torah that differs from their version, which originated from the foundational institutional Torah hatred of 4th century Constantinian Christianity. Those who cling to their own personal form of oral teachings invented in those early centuries of Christianity specifically to counter the true Torah and which differs with the legitimate Hebraic-based oral Torah, people who do that will likely never see the New Testament as what it is, a thoroughly Jewish composition of writings which differs only slightly with many of the traditions of past Jewish Torah sages. As stated, oral Torah is a legitimate concept. Anyone thinking otherwise is either ignoring the obvious, a hypocrite, hypocrite, or both. Despite their claims to the contrary, Christians and others do not actually reject oral Torah. They simply reject those verbal teachings, 
oral Torah that conflict with their own. That is a fact. Christian leaders know this. If they deny this, they're lying. The concept of oral Torah is legitimate and, in fact, absolutely necessary. Those who deny this prove themselves to be lacking even the most basic intellectual capability or to be biased and deluded beyond the reach of reason. It is my hope that you do not fall into either of those categories. So thank you for listening to this 11-part series of Oral Torah. I know it's been very complicated at times. I also know, to be honest, very few people will listen to this. I'm not under some delusion thinking that this is going to be a widely heard podcast or YouTube channel audio. I, I, I I know that's not going to happen. But I make this podcast, as the others, to serve God. I do so because I can then stand before the Creator God on the Day of Judgment and and have evidence supporting the fact I tried. I did my best to serve Him. And I have evidence. I have a website. I have podcasts. I have a YouTube channel, etc., proving I tried. Whether or not people listen to it or not. But if you have listened to it, and if it has raised your awareness and understanding of Oral Torah, please share it. Please try to get people, because Christians need, desperately need, to realize that Oral Torah is an extremely useful resource. They need to break away from pagan Mithraism, sun god worship, idolatrous Christianity that that still practices the pagan rituals of Christ Mass, Christmas, and Easter, and other things. It is a despicably, totally pagan idolatrous faith system birthed in pagan Rome, and Christians do not even realize. They don't even realize it. They actually think they're worshiping according to the Bible and don't realize they're actually totally deceived by the Satan and his agents within the idolatrous pagan Christian world. Return to Torah. Return to oral Torah. Return to a true understanding of the New Testament and of Yeshua the Messiah and his mission and role. Thank you for listening. And goodbye.